Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Happy Labor Day, listeners. Hopefully, if you're hearing this on release day, you are relaxing and enjoying a little break at the end of your summer as we transition into fall. I know I had my first pumpkin spice latte this weekend, so as far as I'm concerned, it's time. Here on A Feelin' Film Podcast, we are continuing our journey through the John Grisham cinematic adaptation universe with the sixth film, one that is much more legal drama than legal thriller, as many of the previous entries have been. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me for this conversation about what he has already stated more than once is among his favorites of the John Grisham films is my best friend and co-host, Patch. Hello, everyone. It's good to be here. Happy Labor Day. Yes. Happy Labor Day to you as well. To Shoot, all Americans. By the time we, all Americans. By the time we yeah, finish recording, it might actually be Labor Day for you. Yes. <laughs> College football has swallowed us up where we're yeah. now having to say, hold, hold. Okay, now we can record. <laughs> Thank goodness they're normally on Saturdays. This was a yes, kind of yeah, a one-off the, the, for the, us. Yeah, the rare primetime Sunday night game uh, for for my team that unfortunately didn't end the way I wanted it to, but it was a great way to kick off college football, and hopefully we won't have many of those kinds of games, at least not in my uh, my team's um, not uh, not favor in my team's favor. I hope they have that. But anyway, I couldn't figure out how to say that backwards, but anyway, you know what I mean. Need to need to make it rain with that. I need to make a rain, need right? NIL money to get a better team. <laughs> need a rainmaker. Anyway, I that's a terrible to that transition. Yeah. <laughs> I'm objecting to that performance tonight, but hopefully oh that objection gosh. will be sustained and we will move on to week two. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, for all you non-sports fan listeners, I hope you're still with us. Uh, we are going to spoil the heck out of this movie, The Rainmaker, starring Matt Damon and talk about it in depth as we like to do and with that let's just go ahead and jump right into it patrick i want to start off with a very personal question because this is what i kept thinking about the whole time i was watching this movie so <laughs> it long time listeners of the podcast may know this and have heard this story before but you famously i like to say it's it's a famous moment in my life for some reason i think of it as like it is one of the defining moments in my memory but you got hit by a van while you were out running, used to yes. do this a lot. So I have a question. Did any ambulance chasers come after you akin to the kind of lawyers that we saw in this movie? Well, let me clarify your statement there. I would run a lot. I wouldn't get hit by vans a lot. Okay? <laughs> oh, whoops, just, my bad. Let's like, you just kind of move the predicate or some kind of grammatical issue there. But no, I only got hit once. <laughs> I fell backwards and promptly injured my legs. And uh, gratefully, I was not injured with head injuries. I didn't have any internal bleeding. It was good. But to answer your question, I was not visited by many people. I did, however, uh, via my wife's cell phone, Instagram, or whatever she was posting at the time, receive about 12 letters from 12 different law offices within a week. And she fanned them out like we were about to play Uno or something. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh this is gosh. insane. I don't know if I actually used one of them. I didn't have to get litigation involved uh, as, as far as like all that stuff went down. And it took just over a year to actually get a settlement. But yeah, I, I think there were so many. And I was like, I don't know what to do with this. <laughs> I mean, did, did I do something wrong? And did I do something right? I don't know. But in the end... Um, I was able to walk again. I was able to run again. And, uh, you know, the law firm that I ended up hiring, they took care of me at the tune of one third. So it was, uh, you know, I guess it was good for everybody, I suppose. Yeah, kind of. At least it turned out better than it did in the movie. That's for sure. Yeah, uh, I paid off my movie. student loan with it, which I guess in hindsight, in today's culture, maybe <laughs> not have been a great thing. But I think I owed less than 10. So... <laughs> Yeah, so you paid it off it several years out. ago. You might have you might have yeah. ended up with more interest by now than it was yeah. worth. So <laughs> Yeah, right. That's always the problem. But yeah. So I didn't technically have ambulance chasers in my in my room at the hospital, but they definitely came on paper via the US Postal Service. So thanks for that, All USPS. Right. So realistic movie is what Patrick is saying. This is true very, to very form much. <laughs> what actually happens. <laughs> yes. Uh, still even ten years after the the time that the film was set. Well, the formula for this particular entry is very much the same. And at this point, six movies in, it's obvious. Idealistic young lawyer, 
taking on the big boys in some fashion. You can pretty much distill all of these stories down to that basic idea. This one, though, as I mentioned, is much, much more of a pure drama versus the thriller style of previous films that tended to kind of have a little bit of an action pulse to them. And Francis Ford Coppola directed this entry. So the director of The Godfather, very esteemed director, uh, very well-known, very prestigious. And I just wondered, you said you liked this one. So is there something about this approach that you preferred uh, or did you do you like the other approach better now that you've kind of seen this one in context of rewatching or watching all of the other movies? This one just reaffirms in light of watching the rest that I like the crime drama. Excuse me. I like the courtroom drama more than I like the thriller. And I think it's because, as I mentioned, I think on the client episode and maybe even to an extent, one of the other ones, this idea that. If you're going to give me a thriller, really sell it. Don't make me feel like I have to believe a character is doing something that I don't feel like they would. And the client, I think, really made that true in that we have an up-and-coming lawyer who wins more than she loses, taking a kid to go look for a body, which doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. And it's not something that I really latch on to. I am going to gravitate towards drama more than anything else with a close second, depending on the type of comedy it is, I will kind of lean into comedy. And when I watch this, I really feel like as a story, it hits a balance of both comedy and drama, particularly with Matt Damon. We mentioned on the Chamber episode that it was difficult to believe the main character as a lawyer, even as a young lawyer. Matt Damon really pulls off that baby face, but because he doesn't have to be involved in something so incredibly like thriller based, it's easier for me to really latch onto him as a young up and coming lawyer. The exposition is set up really well where the cases that he has, it's not like he just had them dropped in his lap. There was a law workshop in Memphis. And so it made a lot of sense. And so he actually had to remind his two um, his two clients that, oh yeah, remember we met at the law workshop and he was excited to get into law itself. He hadn't passed the bar yet. And I think for a John Grisham formula, I think this is at its purest what makes it one of my favorites because I can believe that Matt Damon is a young lawyer, but a young lawyer who is not really confident in who he is. You've got Mitch McDeer, who is another great young lawyer just out of law school, but he's already impressed a lot of people. Like, he is sought after. Whereas Rudy is just this baby face living out of his car because he's been evicted. There's so much that really is given to us in the form of exposition in the first, like, 15, 20 minutes that you're already like, yeah, I can absolutely believe that this guy knows enough to get some clients and that his clients are not real savvy because they're asking questions, too. And he's looking for a job. And of course, he's going to get a job working for a guy named Bruiser Stone. So <laughs> I think that in and of itself is what kind of sells me on it. And then you add these elements of emotional attachment that he has to his clients, emotional attachment that I have to him and to his clients. The cast around him isn't like all-star, although we like a lot of the character, a lot of the actors that have appeared in all these movies. They're not... They're not insanely big names, and there's not a lot of them. I mean, it's a very quiet movie, and I think that's part of what appeals to me is that it doesn't try to be more than it is, whereas with a client or with a time to kill, it feels – both of those are – you know, the client I didn't really like as much like time to kill, I really did, but there's like this overabundance of like, what's going on? And the Pelican Brief, what's going on? Suspense, crazy. Even The Firm had that. This movie said – this is what I would expect to see in a city like Memphis. It's nothing that's going to be groundbreaking, although the outcome of the insurance case was you know, putting a company out of business. But overall, the approach wasn't something that was going to be like, there's no conspiracy, there's no FBI, there's no mafia. It's just straight courtroom drama that I can actually feel like I'm sitting in the courtroom watching this play out. And at the end of the day, 
I would be incredibly surprised if I got the outcome that Rudy Baylor did with the insurance company. But then again, I would be just as surprised if I didn't because of the way that the story plays out. So I think that because it feels homegrown, because it feels like a story that I could live in, I think that's why it appeals to me. That's fair. I think that's a good reason and makes a lot of sense. I agree wholeheartedly with the Matt Damon comments because I think he feels like a perfect middle ground between Mitch McDeer, Tom Cruise, superstar, and Chris O'Donnell, baby-faced, completely just so fresh and new that we almost didn't buy him. And I think Matt Damon is like the middle ground of that. Like he's got a little bit of that, like you said, that confidence and that superstar nature of a Tom Cruise, but he's not on that level. And then he's definitely above (laughs) from a serious standpoint, what we think of when we get a Chris O'Donnell and from an acting talent overall. And so I, I love him in this role. I don't love this movie. I'd like it. I think it's good. I think it's probably, it's a little too slow for my liking, my taste. And it just doesn't, ha- and that doesn't mean that I like the thrillers more, interestingly enough, because I actually really like that this is all the courtroom stuff. We're all just heavily law based and not any outside influences like that. But I just felt like the pacing was very, very slow and drawn out and even especially mixed with the score, which there's some pieces in here that really sound like the Godfather. And it felt a lot like that kind of to me at times, but I do like it. And I think that the fact that we get probably more time in a courtroom in this movie combined than the five before it is pretty telling, you know, this is an actual movie where we see some stuff (laughs) and we see both sides and that is a joy. I think we're, we've been wanting that and maybe in our heads when we even decided to do this series, we probably assumed there was more of that than we were, you know, got like, I think in our, you know, we just remembered it differently. We were like, Oh yeah, these are legal thrillers. Of course there's going to be all these great courtroom scenes. And then we we keep watching them and we're like, huh, (laughs) where was uh, the courtroom? They didn't ever step in foot in that. (laughs) They talked about it once or twice. Yeah. Uh, I think you also made a great point about the lack of other superstar cast. There's no distractions here, you know, other than Danny DeVito as your main, you know, side character and Claire Danes is recognizable, but really outside of that, it's not anybody that we, all right, he was there. Was who was it? Was was Lithgow in this one? Is that who it was? No, no, he was oh, not. Lithgow. No, just Devito. Who's the who was the the lawyer for the oh insurance um, company? What's her name's uh, dad? <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> very helpful. Sorry, Laura Croft's um, um, Laura Croft's dad. <laughs> Richard I'm Croft sorry. was the lawyer. <laughs> I'm really confused. I can't remember because my brain. It's happening right now. <laughs> sorry, John Voight. Excuse me. John I was Voight. close. I got the first yeah. name right. John. <laughs> John Voight. Because it's not, not a common John name at all. <laughs> not John Lithgow. <laughs> well, that's what I meant. I'm just saying. Anyway, he's recognizable as well. But yeah, there sure. just there aren't a lot, and they're used sparingly, other than Devito, really. And I, I think yeah. It's better for that, for sure. Yeah, I think so too. And I think well, I kind of Oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say I I think there's enough faces there that keep you interested if you aren't really familiar with the story or the story's not grabbing your attention. And this came at a time with Matt Damon where he was having like a huge like paycheck uh, kind of not renaissance, but but a whole string of like back-to-back-to-back-to-back movies. I think Rounders was coming out. He was filming that, Goodwill Hunting, and I think it was because of his performance here that Goodwill he got cast for Goodwill Hunting, and I don't remember the third one. But yeah, I mean, all four of those movies, or three of the four that I remember, were really like big booms for him. And similar characters. That was another thing I was yes. going to say is, this feels like his character in Rounders or in Goodwill Hunting could have literally like progressed to this phase in their next step of life. It just, yeah. there's so much like on that same level. Um, he nailed playing that type of character so well, uh, which is like you said, what kind of caused his career to take off. 
before we started stranding him in various life and death situations like space and <laughs> world war ii what and a terrible like second life you have that day, but just to get <laughs> that's what you're places. known for yeah we just outside our behind. solar system or outside our planet <laughs> <laughs> all right well there's three main cases that make up the structure of this film and i, I wanted to talk about those it's altogether very much a david verse goliath situation it's rudy versus great benefit being the big one so uh, let's talk about the main primary case first essentially he comes to this family the son has leukemia is dying from leukemia on his last legs the family has been wanting to get treatment was an experimental treatment of some kind or something that they were trying to get yeah it was up and coming like a typical type of like bone marrow Right. Transplant kind of. type stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And they got denied and repeatedly denied uh, and to the point where they were not going to get any sort of benefit and worse, of course, their son was going to not get what he needed and was going to die. And so, you know, Rudy is part of this new law firm that Bruiser, his bar owner that he works for, clearly is very shady. And and has some stuff going on. He quickly departs the movie <laughs> by running away from an FBI investigation to like the Caribbean or something from which he makes a phone call at some point later on in the film to help things out <laughs> while he's like sipping on a Mai Tai. It's in a Hawaiian shirt. It's the most stereotypical scene in the history of movies, but right. um, it's hilarious. <laughs> but anyway, so he he's, you know, part of this crew with Danny DeVito, who he says himself, I failed the bar six times. So you're working with a guy who never was able to do the technical piece of becoming a lawyer and get a license to to practice, but has the street smarts, has the people skills and the understanding. And their job is to go and like collect these people, these clients, and bring them to Bruiser, and then they get a cut of whatever the settlements they can manage from these clients are. And so this is like Rudy's big one. And it, the whole thing is a big indictment on the insurance company. So kind of in the vein of like the chamber commenting on the death penalty and a time to kill commenting on vigilante justice. Like this is about insurance companies that essentially push people to, by denying their claims and by making so much red tape in order to get a claim approved that people just give up or quit. So the insurance company never has to pay out. And are they always just going to win? And here this young idealistic lawyer is going up against them. And so, yeah, you mentioned, I it felt like you were saying maybe you didn't think it was quite a realistic ending. Is that what I'm getting from you or? No, I mean, I think it's it's definitely something that's doable. And one thing I really like about The Rainmaker is the method in which it's done. I've said this before, and I'll continue to say it as we walk through courtroom dramas that we love for 400, Alex, the idea of being able to get that aha moment. So breaking out the executive manual and section U and the letter that came from the association to the insurance company about bone marrow and how it's become so much common that there's no reason we shouldn't be covering it. It's like the, oh my gosh, incredible stuff. And I'm saying that it could happen, but I don't know that it happens that dramatically. I think that there are the method by technicality, I think, is something that happens more often than not. I think in this movie, it's dressed up in terms of how we get there. But yes, I mean, insurance companies, I think, are by default the bad guys. Because if you think about the concept of insurance, I drive a car. And I am required, Aaron, I am required to have insurance in order to drive that car. Yep. But having insurance by definition is me saying, if I get into an accident, then I don't have to pay more than a certain amount of money. That's my choice. And I'm, I'm saying, if I get into an accident, why can't I be responsible enough to pay for it out of pocket? Same thing with health insurance. 
I'm not required to have, well, I, I didn't used to be required to have health insurance or get penalized <laughs> by the say. government. <laughs> but the idea of insurance being required is such a such an interesting concept. Sometimes it's a frustrating concept because it's it's almost a forced bill that you have to that you have to be accountable to by being a human being. You have to either have car insurance if you drive or if you don't. You have to have homeowner's insurance in order to own a home, even if you have a mortgage in which you're paying on month after month after month after month, in which case you really don't own your home, do you? Anyway, I digress. I think the fact is insurance companies as a whole are looked at in such a negative light because they're essentially just getting free money every month from their consumers. And I think what this movie does so well is it creates a what if, but possibly could be, and possibly is scenario of an insurance company that says, listen, sign up with us, pay $200 a month, and we'll get you taken care of. But what they don't show you is that thick policy that says, here's what we don't cover, pre-existing conditions, da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Da, 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 da. What I was impressed with was that Dot's writing, and I'm wondering what's in those letters, <laughs> those seven letters before that eighth one comes comes to the insurance company where they respond, you must be stupid, stupid, stupid. Wow. I, I just wonder what's in those in those letters. Like, what's changed in those six months. Now, the the movie's not, and the story's not expecting to tell us that. But this time around, I started thinking, was she thinking at some point that something had changed with her son's condition? I know he was getting worse, but what letters were coming back? Were they just saying, sorry, your claims denied under this, your claims denied under this, your claims denied under this? Did that change? Or was it just the same song, fourth verse, fifth verse, sixth verse? But watching the case play out, I felt like we got elements of truth dramatized to create what we see as a good guy, bad guy story. And I think that's what makes the movie like fun to watch for me, is that there are clear good guys and bad guys. There, there are stories out there where the gray is what sells me. Lots of villains that are not just mustache twirling. But John Voight right. is clearly a mustache twirling villain. Absolutely. And and Bruiser Stone is clearly a mustache twirling, you know, mobster that we don't take seriously because of the way he dresses, because of the way mm -hmm. his cigarette hangs out of his mouth. I mean, I don't take the guy seriously. He's personified as this mafia dude, but I don't take him very seriously as much as I would some of these other similar characters in past Grissom movies. But clearly John Voight is the bad guy. And so being able to define that and using the insurance company as a crux, I think just amplifies that small truth that insurance companies have the opportunity to be corrupt. Are they? That's a question for <laughs> the courtroom to decide when claims get denied. And I think that's what this movie is trying to kind of show is that big companies, whether you're Facebook, whether you're an insurance company, whether you're Theranos, <laughs> you need to be held in check. You need to be accountable, especially when you're getting so much money from an audience or from clients or from investors that the more money you get, the more accountable you need to be. Oh, man, I wholeheartedly agree. And I love that you say what you did about it not being gray because I, I do really appreciate that part of this particular story that we know right from the jump that there's no question who's in the wrong here. It's not framed to us as if maybe the blacks did something incorrect. And it is very clearly like you are getting screwed by this institution. And it's just a matter of, can you find a way to, to be the David that takes the Goliath down or do you just get stomped and crushed by them? Like they do everyone else. I also, I think the dialogue in this one is just really well written and and really good little 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 things like when Rudy first approaches Dot and Donnie at their home kind of signing them up. We often think of lawyers somewhat in the same vein as we think of this insurance company, right? As like scum suckers who are just trying to make money off of you. And she puts a contract in front of Dot and he is, she's like, what does all this say? And he, he kind of goes over it and he reads it and gives her like a paraphrased version of what's in the contract. 
and what it means to hire him in less than 30 seconds or something. And her response is, why does it take two pages to say all that? And and immediately I was like, well, yeah, because just like the insurance companies, your thing is full of disclaimers and details and all of these specificities that go so far beyond like this big promise that you're making. And even though he's not shady, right? He's kind of working for someone who is, and he doesn't really, we don't know yet at that moment how it's going to play out. But I just think it's a cool dichotomy of like looking at the insurance company that is works in a similar way to the way that the lawyers work. And Rudy is, I think, very self-aware of that because there's that great quote that I voxed you when I was rewatching the movie because it stood out to me where he says, when can you tell a lawyer is lying? His lips are moving. What's the difference between a hooker and a lawyer? The hooker will stop screwing you after you're dead. Everybody loves lawyers' jokes, especially lawyers. They're even sort of proud of them. Why do you think that is? And then you mentioned to me, he kind of grins even a little bit at that. And I just thought that was kind of interesting um, piece of this movie that is acknowledging how we see lawyers, even within the context of making one a hero. Yeah. When we look at how Rudy tells the story, the balance of hearing him sort of comment on stuff as it's happening. I really started thinking about when was this monologue taking place? Obviously it was after all of the events that, well, I say obvious as I look back on it, I feel like there's, there's a part of me that feels like it's done in real time because he speaks in the present tense and it's almost as if we're getting a chance to watch this unreliable narrator kind of tell the story in terms of setting up what's happening, setting up what will happen, setting up what's happened in the past. And you're right, having that sort of self-awareness, it allows us to recognize that, one, lawyers are very wide range in terms of what they practice. There's this great discussion between um, him and Kelly, played by you know Claire Danes, as you mentioned, who I miss. I don't know where she's been. You know, she... <laughs> She was great in my so-called life, and she was great in this and 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 several others. And I'm like, where did you go, Claire? <laughs> Come back to me because I love you. Um, but watching him dialogue with her, she asks what kind of law he practices, and I think that as he's telling her, it reveals sort of what his motives are. Like he really wants to help people, and that's very consistent with the John Grisham idealist lawyer. But this is the first time we get a lawyer who isn't real definitive about the types of people he wants to defend. And so she goes through, well, we get to a point where he doesn't want to defend murderers. He doesn't want to defend child rapists. He says that murderers have their day in court. They deserve that as human beings. And then she says, you know, men who beat their wives. And there's this really interesting nonverbal communication where he is fiddling with an apple and he kind of puts it down and he stops the conversation because I think he's getting a little too close to this. And so that conversation along with several others just reveals how much of a gamut lawyers live in, in terms of like, well, I need a good lawyer. Well, for what? Are you a, you looking for a divorce lawyer? Are you looking for a litigator? Are you looking for a tax lawyer? And they all practice different things. What Rudy wants to do is he loves the courtroom. And I think that that's so great because we get to see that in its infancy. We get to see that grow throughout the movie. And I think to an extent, it's a little unreal. It's idealistic. It would be difficult for me to really latch on to Rudy's character as really having that kind of growth if by the end of the movie, he was able to really sound like a lawyer. At no point did I feel like Aaron, he felt confident in his skin in terms of being able to object and sustain and it, it that's what well, I think he fumbled through it yeah he fumbled he did big time that's and that's what appeals to me is that we get a lawyer who is acting like a new lawyer in the courtroom but he's bold you know, like in the yes. in the one of my favorite scenes is in the deposition when he goes to see the great benefit group with John Voigt and his crew and 
half the people aren't there that he's supposed to depose. And John Voight's giving him all this back talk. And finally, he's just like, I'm curious. Do you even remember when you first sold out? And and it, I, I was like, I, I did like the, oh, you know, run back. Like, mic drop. Like, I can't, he was getting frustrated. And you, I love that, you know, you you see him and you know that he's not, like you said, comfortable in his skin quite yet in the courtroom. And and even against this guy, we see it later on after that. But you can tell there is a comfort or confidence in this setting where he just isn't going to get run over. Even if he knows that he's outmatched, he's going to fight. And and I really thought that that perfectly laid that out for him in his character. Yeah. And the voiceover, I think what what it adds to the movie is the realistic approach that he's taking. So that scene, the setup, he was basically contrasting his living situation going up there to do his deposition with the bigwigs that are going to enjoy a night out to dinner with steak and whatever. And they're going to go have a nice night's sleep in their in their suites be able to get up early, have breakfast, and be able to kind of get into a big boardroom where he's just rolling in on a bus and he's going to be right into the deposition. There, Grisham's, whoever's dialogue here, the, the screenplay here is clearly setting up a David and Goliath approach. And I think that there's something nice about, I won't call it allegory, but it feels just more deliberate and obvious. There's no subtlety here. And there's a place for that. That's what I think is really nice about The Rainmaker is that it can be a movie that doesn't have to be subtle. It can be very deliberate in terms of how it tells its story. And you take Rudy versus uh, Leo, and that is a David and Goliath story. And it really does get brought out at the deposition where you have this one guy sitting across the table from like seven other people. You've got this one guy with his partner who has not passed the bar sitting across the courtroom from like seven other people. So watching how this plays out, how he finishes that deposition is so great. He goes, I'm going to pose this guy and then I'm going to go home and that's it. He doesn't do anything else. He doesn't, this is after the whole, when did you sell out comment? But I think it's fantastic that he does. He's able to hold his own when he's in the, uh, the chambers of um, Judge uh, Judge Judge Hale, played by the the late Dean Stockwell, who I absolutely adore. You you see you see them tag team him. You see Hale and Drummond tag team him to try to get him to settle. He comes out and Dex says, "How'd it go?" He says, "That wasn't a meeting in chambers. That was an ambush." So he's clearly aware. He's not stupid. He just doesn't know how to execute. And I think that's what the rest of the movie really shows us well is how are you going to execute your defense? How are you going to execute how you're able to get around some of the legality? And so watching him initially in the courtroom, fumbling through, talking to Dot, not being able to approach the witness, and <laughs> just having... Um, having the, his uh, witness get discounted for her yeah. personal stakes, which is, seems to be a reoccurring theme that keeps coming up. Because yes. when, you, when you can't win... Not ethically, when you can't win on good form and actual legality, it feels like that's the lawyer tactic, right? The dirty tactic right. is, well, okay, then I'm just going to make sure everybody knows that this witness has skeletons in their closet so that we can, you know, not take what they're saying seriously due to yeah. their own past or whatever. Right. And so you see the judge who is sort of struggling with him because. You know, he want. I won't say he wants him to he's win. Being he's, pretty helpful, I feel like. Yeah, I think he knows he's in the right. And so I wonder if that's that's a question I have, just as a just a curious question. Is that stuff that happens where you know a, a lawyer's fairly new? Can you can you help? Can you assist? Can you? I mean, as a judge, they got a lot of you, leeway, man. I think they, they did. did. I think yeah, because it it really does feel like <laughs> it feels like a. I don't know, like a test you're taking and you're asking for the answers or you're asking for a hint for for the answers. Uh, and that's something else I liked about this movie is you you see a, a new lawyer who just doesn't know how to do the stuff, doesn't know how to object and be sustained. In fact, there's this one great moment where he and Deck discover that their office is being bugged. And they do that whole roundabout with the jury selection and Randy Travis, who I think is great in this little cameo. Yeah. He gets thrown out of the jury because 
um, Drummond thinks that, well, anyway, that whole bit with, they think that they're trying to bribe jurors and stuff. And when, when Drummond starts making his argument, Rudy just, <laughs> and it's this, almost this farcical way goes, objection, this is ridiculous. You know, it's just so overly dramatic, but yeah. <laughs> there's part of me, it was like, did he think he was actually being serious or was he being funny at that point? I, I felt like it was a little bit of both because he knew that obviously he had gotten him in a lie, but in some ways I think Rudy Baylor's probably watched too much Perry Mason that he thinks that's what he's supposed to do. <laughs> probably. So I, I just love that stuff, man. It's good. Yeah, I do too. I also really love Dane DeVito in the movie. Yeah. I remember when I first started watching, I was like, oh no, is he going to be kind of like, is he a bad guy? Is he dirty? Is he like a Gene Hackman in the firm, right? Whereas he's kind of on the take, but he ends up being a really solid, good, good guy deep down. And he helps out in a lot of fun little ways. And that great scene at the end when they read the verdict and it just cuts and shows like wide. So you see John Voigt being upset. And then, yeah. And then Danny DeVito is like pointing and chuckling at him, like in the courtroom. <laughs> and I'm, I was laughing out loud at it. Cause I, cause it again, and that it's, but that is a great example of what you're talking about. These guys are just so green. They don't, they're not stuck up. They're not pompous. They're not full of themselves. They're just there. And they're, they're kind of having fun with it in a sense. It's almost like, an athlete, when you tell him, just go out there and have fun. Remember that you play the game for fun, that you're not out. You don't get in your head. Don't get too stiff. And they both sort of approach it that way. And it's fun to see that lawyering style. Yeah. I court. think what makes me appreciate Danny DeVito's character deck is that he has a goofiness to him that DeVito brings to the table. Like he, he's, he's got comedic chops. And this is what I was kind of referring to earlier is that there are moments of levity that don't really exist as prominently in Grisham's other movies. And I think that's what's appealing to me is that you have, maybe they're not as deep in terms of the themes and stuff that are going on in The Rainmaker, but the levity is very appropriate. Deck's been doing this for years. He's been an associate. He's sat for the bar, what, six times, six or seven, something like that. And he has not passed. And I don't think he ever does. Like, I think he leaves at the end of the movie and I think it's, uh, yeah, Rudy says, uh, call me when you pass the bar. Just, you know, let me know. But he is a great resource. And he's able to call Bruiser and say, hey, I got a stolen evidence issue. What do you got? So he has connections. He's also very, in a sense, humble. Like when he's walking Rudy through the office, it's got Bruiser's Law Library. And he's really kind of focused on the fridge there. You know, put your name on it. And he's eating Chinese food while he's doing it. He's just that kind of common man that feels really approachable. And I think that's what makes them a great team and why they have the clients that they do is because they don't feel so overbearing with their clients. They don't feel like they are out to get anybody. And when you watch somebody like Birdie, who is very hesitant about having an, a lawyer kind of work on her will because she expects the lawyer to have his name put in it or something like that, that speaks to kind of the attitude of clients to their lawyers like what's in it for you well it's a third most of the time and the fact is dex kind of that way <laughs> you know he's really about the money but he's not driven by that in fact what i think is great is that he looks at rudy and he he respects him enough to say we should have taken the money but look if this is what you want to do let's do it and he's all in for whatever rudy wants to do so they really are a team but he sees rudy as taking the lead mainly because he is not legally allowed to practice law in the courtroom. So he's kind of getting a little sketchy with his uh, approaching of uh, Roy Scheider's character. I can't remember his name. I think it was uh, Lufkin. No, not Lufkin. It was um, Keeley, the uh, the CEO. And <laughs> I love when Rudy approaches him and says, what are you doing? You don't, you don't even have a degree, a degree. You don't have a license. And he's like, yeah, and you were late. Get in there. You know, it's like... It's not completely his fault, Rudy. <laughs> you need to show up. So watching how he and Rudy interact, I really do think they make a great team. And I think had they stayed together at the end of the movie, I think that would have been a law firm that if I was in this movie, I would love to have them represent me because they would have my best interests and theirs at heart. Like I think that they're very transparent about the fact that this is what we do. 
we don't do it at this point. We're not doing it for just money. We see real value in being able to represent the people that we do. And I think that Deck is kind of in that same camp, although he's got street smarts. So he brings something different to the table, but it's not in conflict with Rudy. Yeah. I, it would have been interesting to think about what they could be if they continue. And that's one of the aspects of this one that is so different in the end. Well, maybe it's not different. We talked early on after a several of these films about how it felt like many of the protagonists and like the firm and the Pelican brief specifically, they end up like not being lawyers anymore. <laughs> like they can't because of the situations that they go through. Essentially they end up, well, I guess maybe Tom Cruise does Mr. McGeary. Maybe he does, but they end up in these situations where they're not just moving on with a normal life. There's always going to be something hanging over their heads. And that wouldn't have been the case here necessarily. Like they could have just gone on and practiced law, but Rudy does feel like there is something hanging over his head because of the way the case plays out. So they get awarded, you know, the dramatic 150,000 and everybody's like, like, oh my gosh, is that it? And then they get, and also <laughs> for, you know, 50 million and they think they've won. They, everybody's gotten all this great money. And then we find out that great benefits has been forced to file bankruptcy rather than be able to pay all the claims. And therefore, they end up getting nothing. And so they still consider it a win because they're idealistic that they put the business out or they put great benefit out of business. So it is a win overall. And I love that Dot sees it like that because she's the one who lost a loved one. She sees it as that's more important than any sort of money I could get. And even even whether she donated it or not, because it's not going to bring her son back. But now... No one else can get hurt by this company that the way that she did. But ultimately, we get this little bit of voiceover at the end. And I wondered about that and what you may think about how the how this fits with the idealistic nature of Rudy throughout the film. Does it mesh with that? What he says is every lawyer, at least once in every case, feels himself crossing a line that he doesn't really mean to cross. It just happens. And if you cross it enough times, it disappears forever. And then you're nothing but another lawyer joke. Just another shark in the dirty water. And he says this while talking about how essentially he has become so famous because of this case that he no longer can feel like he can live up to the approach that he put forth in this case and that he's always going to have these expectations on him and he's afraid that if he continues this is what's going to happen to him and i wasn't i felt it was almost like a little tragic to me to be honest patrick like i it's the wrap-up of the other subplot is part of this because he ends up going off and getting engaged or married to kelly Riker, his new you know, love who he met in the hospital and saved from her abusive husband. And it's, it's one of those things where like, he's not going to practice law anymore. And so like he, we go through this whole story with him learning about something, going through it for this first time, accomplishing something incredible that is supposedly so meaningful to him. And then he just, he's never going to do it again. I, I just was left a little sad about that. Yeah, that's part of one of the small issues I have with this movie is, well, what are you going to do next, Rudy? I mean, are you going to go to Notre Dame and be a small running back? I or wondered if for, that, I knew that was coming at some point. I knew it. Now. <laughs> are you going to become a gambler now? Is this what happens? Is this what happens to Rudy Baylor? He changes his name, moves to Boston, and then becomes a great oh, gambler. It's backwards get... from what I said earlier. Yeah, now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I got you. He moves up north regardless. But yeah, I, I think for me, Aaron, you you take this character and and I really do ask the question, well, what are you going to do then? I mean, are you going to live out your days with your girlfriend who's not going to get beat by Andrew Shu from Melrose place anymore? What is that? Are you going to, are you going to work for a halfway house? What are you going to do? Because the fact is he's absolutely right. He can only go down from here, but once he goes down, then he has a track record. Then he has a win some, lose some. And then he's a, he's a reliable lawyer. And I think what makes this frustrating from an audience standpoint is that the movie itself 
is something I can completely get behind. I love the idea, although I don't know that it's necessarily healthy. I love the idea of a client getting attached or a lawyer getting attached to his clients. He even says, they say you're not supposed to get attached to your clients, but there are all kinds of lawyers. So by the end of the movie, I'm like, well, Rudy, be another kind of lawyer. Be a lawyer who has people around him that helps keep him in check, that keeps those ideas in check. Because to take one case and to then quit, it it doesn't trans I don't know what it would translate to. Those ideals, what do they translate to in order to help people? Yes, there are so many ways that you can help people, but are you gonna be like a pro bono lawyer and try to cook on as your job? Or are you gonna do something else? Are you gonna work a different kind of law? Because if you're quitting being a lawyer, you've really just sort of given up the avenue by which you want to achieve your goals, not financially, not success, but the idea of really helping folks do what they need, which or get people what they need, which is help, helping the everyman, helping the widows, the orphans, and the poor, whatever you want to call it. And now they don't have that representation anymore. Regardless of whether or not they win or lose their case, I would think that the, the clients that he has are going to be those that say, hey, just give me a fighting chance. You've given these other people a fighting chance. I'm, yes, I would love to take down the insurance company or whatever my fight is, but I know that the magic's not always going to be there. I would, you know, in, in the real world, I would think that he would understand that not every client's going to expect that from him, even though he says that. To give it up, I think, is really kind of immature, honestly, and stupid. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like, I can't help but equate it to sports. We're both huge sports fans, and for me, that's the analogy that I draw. Now, he does say he's going to go teach instead, and so I keep drawing this parallel where it's it's the equivalent of imagine a rookie or maybe a second year player in the NBA or an NFL quarterback who has an incredible out of nowhere season and leads his team to a championship and a Super Bowl or an NBA title. And then that offseason is like, you know what? I don't think I can back that up. I'm retiring. I'm just going to retire. I'm going to go out on top. I got the rest of my life ahead of me. I'm 22 years old and I'm going to go coach. I'm done. People would feel robbed of this special talent. We would be like, you have something amazing. You have accomplished something incredible. We want to see you work. We want to see you do your craft. There's a lot of people that a lot of good that can come from you. Like you're saying with Rudy, you can help people. Now, can he help people coaching or in my analogy, like in my analogy or teaching in this case? Sure. But it does feel somewhat like a cop out. It feels scared to me. It feels like he's scared. And it makes me wonder about the character of him and that quote, because he specifically says he's afraid he might become Leo Drummond. Is there something inside of him combined with that joke about lawyers, right? That he acknowledges and kind of is like, you know, sometimes there may be a little truth to those things. Does he not have faith that he's going to be able to push back and not turn into that, which is sad as well. Like that's the thing is it's sad. Maybe it's realistic probably, but it is also sad to me because I want to believe he's better than that. Well, I want to believe that too, but I don't think he believes he's better than that. That's where I have a problem with this ending is that he has preached this value of ideals, this value Mm -hmm. of purity and to not be able to dive deep into the darkness that is the world of lawyering because you're afraid that you won't live up to that ideal. That's not putting trust in the thing that you are living out. And so in some ways you almost come across as a liar. Like if I can't be perfect, I don't want to do it. And I have a problem with that because part of being an honest to goodness, whatever you are, whether it's in sports or whether it's being a lawyer or referee, you know, I I faced that, you know, I was at a match yesterday and I've only been refereeing for, you know, three seasons, fall, spring, you know, that three, three of those since COVID hit. And I got some good coaching afterwards from the center. He said, Hey, if you're going to call offside, don't move so that it stops the play. And I'm like, duh, you're right. That's something I should know. But I sat with that for 
like two hours. I'm like, oh man, he's never going to want me to ref with him again. I'm a failure. I can't believe I should just quit. You know, I don't need to do this. You know what? I'm going to have one good game. I'm going to be done. That's kind of what went through my head is if, if Rudy's afraid of failing, if he's afraid, if he's afraid of perfection, of not living up to the expectations, which by the way, that, that case is an exception to the rule. Okay. (laughs) This doesn't happen every day. The fact that you caught lightning in a bottle and you're not willing to live out the rest of your life in what you probably see as mediocrity, I think is unfair to the people that you represent or could represent. And it's unfair to you as a growing lawyer, because part of being a lawyer means you lose. If you never lost, if you were Perry Mason the whole time, you would get depicted in a TV show for the sake of everybody else's entertainment. One thing I love about the show, The Practice, is that they don't win their cases all the time. Or if they do win, they're in dirty ways or ways that don't always line up black and white. I think that's what a real uh, criminal lawyer does or a real trial lawyer does is he takes the risk and says, I can't win everyone. I can have the confidence. I can go into it thinking that, yes, the cases that I take on, we have a chance. And for any kind of client that you take on, that's all they ask for. They're not asking for you to be the guy that takes on the next great benefit. I don't think that's going to happen. And so to me, it may come across as like, yeah, you're not going to be Leo Drummond. Well, you're not going to be anything because you're not taking that risk. And so for me, I don't think Rudy's any better than Leo Drummond in that regard because he's not willing to at least represent the other side of what lawyering could be, which is absolutely representing clients that you feel like not only could have a winnable case, but that deserve to have that winnable case, which all three of his cases were both winnable and in our eyes were protagonistic enough to say, yes, I want them to win. Not like, Ooh, I've got some moral issues with dot, you know, cause she probably wasn't, you know, she probably wasn't paying her premiums. No, all three of his cases were clients that I could definitely get behind because you put other people in their path. Like you put, you put birdies, uh, son and daughter who were skeezy Florida people <laughs> in there. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going for birdie. <laughs> Not golf term, but I'm 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 supporting birdie yes, in that regard. Yeah. His and so landlord. I think that, you know, by anyway, by giving it up, I think it's just a cop out. Absolutely. I agree with all that. And he didn't have to be this kind of lawyer either. That's the other thing that kind of what kind of rattled me was like, okay, so don't take cases that are giant attempts at going against a major corporation (laughs) like don't do that again (laughs) maybe you weren't setting off to be an accident insurance lawyer that you were just this is just kind of the, the thing you fell into by default as a first job there's a million different types of law you could practice and ways you could go just take small cases be the local guy like you could do whatever you wanted it just, it felt, yeah, it, it didn't feel great to me. And I also didn't like the subplot in general of Kelly Riker. And I get it. I just, that's part of the movie that I think for me, it doesn't add enough to his character. And it's what slowed down the film. Yeah, and I didn't. I don't love Claire Danes in this movie the way that you kind of liked her. But I, I like the fact that it also was handled in a very lived-in, naturalistic, realistic way to me, there is a a line of dialogue that stood out to me and just kind of gave me chills. And it's after he... Well, so he pushes her to file for divorce, right? Which she's like, listen, that's dangerous. He will come after me. And he's like, no, no, no. We'll be fine. Which is very classic, like, things that happen. This is exactly what happens to women. That's what an abuser is going to do, typically. is going to come after you and try to stop you from getting away. And yet he's kind of pushing her into that. So we get the big moment where the husband comes after them and she ends up having to kill him. And they are standing outside the house afterward and there is a news truck that pulls up and is interviewing people in the street. And it's not focused on. It's just one of the neighbors, and you can kind of hear this dialogue happening further out in the scene. And he says, he finally killed her. 
question. Like he's asking a question and it just, it, it gave me chills because it was like, clearly the neighbors knew this situation was happening, knew this person was in an abusive relationship and literally were assuming that it was a foregone conclusion that eventually this dude was going to kill the woman. And yet no one had ever helped her get out of this situation. And it, that was just, yeah, dude, that just, it, it hurt me. Like knowing that that probably happens frequently and people are just either too intimidated or done in my business and just don't get involved. And yet this could have ended up in the real world, likely so much worse for Kelly, the, the character of Kelly. And so that part of it, I did appreciate because it shines a light on that uh, part of the story. But overall, didn't love the subplot. D did you like it? Did you think it added something to Rudy? Well, I think it reinforced the fact that he was connected to the people that he was representing. And it was nice to be able to see how they all sort of connected with each other. So when Kelly gets beaten to death and he sees the bruises on her back and her face, he takes her over to, to Bertie's house to stay with. So you can make the argument that, well, if that subplot didn't exist, then Bertie wouldn't need to do that. At the same time, I think it reinforces the fact that every one of these cases is a reinforcement that he's okay with being attached. I don't know that I love that he was romantically involved with her. Like I think that in some ways it should have been kept platonic because what it did was it sort of cheapened the ending where, oh, he's not going to be a lawyer, but at least he gets the girl. And I guess I can cheer for that, but... It's not really something that I thought was necessary, something I was cheering for. Like, I wasn't rooting for them to get together. I will say that their moments together were nice. And if I could sort of ignore some of the inappropriate relationships that they built, like the fact that after what seemed like only two or three times of talking at the hospital, he's carrying her to his room and he's slowly shutting the door when visiting hours are over. I'm like, this is getting kind of creepy. And then he uses the door closing to tell her, you need to leave your husband because he's beating the crap out of you. And I don't know that he has that kind of authority at that point in their relationship. So again, I like them together. And I think that it's, it's cool to see him sort of come to her rescue. Again, it's that black and white kind of, it doesn't have to be subtle it just seemed like the timing was just really weird. And I, in short, I think that this movie would have been fine without that subplot. Because at the end of the movie, if we had decided to agree that giving up lawyering was a good thing, having nothing else to fall back on, having a relationship that you started caring about not be there, would have created a little bit more weight for me. And I'm like, all right, so he's got nothing. He started with nothing. He's ending with nothing. What's he going to do next? And I think that question would feel a little bit more valuable to me as an audience, as opposed to saying, yeah, he's going to give up lawyering. He's going to be a teacher and settle down with good old Kelly and they're going to have babies and those babies are going to grow up to be rounders and lawyers and all this good stuff. And <laughs> it's just, it's, it's not, it's not satisfying to me. But as you said, there are moments that they had together. There were a lot that I really enjoyed. I loved yeah. Them, yeah. them in the theater and just being able to hold their, just the tenderness of that. Like he, he never felt like he was exploiting much. her. No, I don't it was know that honest. it was just, it was honest. And I think that there's this like shared trauma that they have where he, at the beginning of the movie, we find out that his mom got beaten by his dad and his dad ended up, you know, dying of an injury or something like that. So he's got connectivity to her. And I think there's a little bit of white savior, not white savior, terrible term but there's a little bit of a savior complex that i think he has and i think that makes her more attractive if you explore that a little bit more i think it makes that subplot a little bit more substantive sub substantiate i don't know the substantive word. thank you yeah but as it stands it feels a little bit like lawyer comes in to scope out potential new client ends up becoming romantically involved and gets her out of her situation and now they live happily ever after idealistic, optimistic, can't disagree with that. Not really my forte though. It's always funny too in these, because we don't deal with this in our movies and our stories, but he's attracted to her. Like he sees a person who's beat up and attractive. 
And so he's like, hmm, let me go help this girl. What if he didn't find her attractive? What if it wasn't Claire Danes? <laughs> you know, I always wonder that. What if it was Birdie? What if it was Birdie? I because mean, human, on. well, no, Birdie's, <laughs> the, that, that's a different kind of savior <laughs> that is necessary. But I'm you, do you that, know what that, I'm saying? Yeah. Like no, there's just, there's this, it's an aspect of our humanity that I think we tend to want to not, or pretend is not a thing. When in reality, it's like people who say, well, you should look more than, you know, skin, surface level or whatever like attraction isn't that the important no attraction is nine nine times out of ten or whatever it's going to be the first trigger that gets you in the door it's gonna be the first thing that you because it's a, it's a, the thing that happens right you see each other now that doesn't mean all relationships are like that obviously you could meet someone that maybe you don't necessarily find immediately physically attractive but over time you spend time together and you bond and in in reality what happens is people look more attractive to each other based on the holistic nature of a person, right? But we do tend to put a lot of immediate action based on that. And I just found that like, ugh. I was like, what if, what if you didn't think she was hot? <laughs> Would you have gone over there and tried to save her? <laughs> but anyway, that's, that's not even really part of this movie. No, I'm just ranting. I, yeah, I liked it though. I liked it. And is this the last one we've seen? What is the next one? Is we have the gingerbread band left? And, and then Runaway Jury. Which I definitely, I've never seen the Gingerbread Man. Right? I think I've seen Runaway Jury. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah those, I, I'm, I'm saying, I've never seen the Gingerbread Man, and I think I've seen Runaway Jury. I don't even I know what the Gingerbread Man is about. It sounds like a horror movie. I mean, it can't be, because it's John Grisham, but it sounds <laughs> very much like a horror movie. Like me. the Candyman? <laughs> yeah, I mean, doesn't it? Doesn't it just sound yeah. like a slasher the flick of some kind? Man. Yeah. He'll bite your head off. <laughs> watch out for sugar <laughs> oh my goodness well with that i'm done uh i i have nothing else to add <laughs> really you don't okay no well i think that again this is uh i will just say this coppola i think does a really great job directing this this feels like a coppola movie it doesn't feel as like like godfather-esque but it's got some subtleties it's got some of the quiet moments and I think that that's where he shines is in these kind of two person dialogues where you have like Rudy with, with, um, with, uh, who is it with Donnie Ray and talking to him at the table and Donnie Ray's nose starts bleeding. I thought that was gross, but yet, you know, it, it's, it's those moments that I feel like there's a lot of vulnerability that lives in this movie and it's, balanced with some great moments of levity like i love the moment where they've just celebrated getting the uh the uh, the van landing <laughs> settlement that guy that they they uh recruited in the in the hospital near the beginning and they get the checks and they're doing the little cheers and of course deck is the only one drinking iced tea everybody else is drinking wine so it's just those little things that i think make the movie charming and uh coppola i think just adds that level of um, it's not gravitas, but it's just this kind of almost like this subtle romanticness to it where it just feels very close, very quiet, localized. Um, even The Godfather, I think, does that to an extent where it's really about like a family atmosphere, you know, having just a small kind of band of people that are on your, your cast list that you kind of see how they flow. And I think that's why even the subplot with Kelly works better for me is because he knows how to tie those things in and just even the story behind him getting attached to this film he never read a john grisham novel picked it up on at the airport read it on the plane and because it intrigued him and kept wow. his attention <laughs> he decided i want to do this one so i think when you have a director that loves the material that's really good so yeah kudos to to coppola for that i thought uh it was good. And it, this feels a lot like The Outsiders in terms of just those, <laughs> just the quaintness of it. This feels more like The Outsiders than The Godfather. But yeah, it's good. It's good. And that'll do it for us on this edition of Feeling Film. As you mentioned, Aaron, we are covering The Gingerbread Man next week, uh, neither of which have seen it. It's got an insane cast of people. You've got Kenneth Branagh, Robert Downey Jr., Daryl Hannah, oh gosh, Tom Berenger, uh, Robert Duvall. So it's supposed to be amazing based on the cast, apparently. <laughs> I don't know, though, because I don't recognize the director or the screenplay writer. And so we will just cross our fingers. This might be a shorter conversation, but that's okay, because we are committed to the Grishamverse. 
All right. All right, man. Well, thank you for a great conversation and we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.